There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. What does the word community mean to you? That's the first question that I put to my guest on this episode, Robert Douglas. Robert is a dad of two boys and as well as building up an online community for dads with his Instagram account, This Father Life, Robert is incredibly community minded in other areas of his life. During our chat, he tells me about the social enterprise that he runs, which supports and facilitates young people from diverse backgrounds to get into a career in film production. We also talk about his voice within the black community, starting conversations about racism on social media, which challenge and educate his online community. One thing's for sure, Robert is pushing out a lot of positivity and good vibes into the world, which I think comes across during our chat. Before we get to that, a quick request from me. If you enjoy the podcast, and I really hope you do, it would be so good if you could subscribe and also leave a rating and a review on whichever podcast app or site you're listening on. It helps the podcast be a bit more visible and it means that even more people will discover it. But enough of that. Here's Robert Douglas talking all things community. Robert, a big warm welcome to the podcast. It is so nice to have you on. Thank you. Finally, yeah, yeah. It's really good to be on um, speaking to you after, what has it been, over two years or a year and a half since I've seen you? I know, I know. We um, we met up a few times, didn't we? Because we were both yes. working with um, a lovely skincare brand and they would kind of like whisk us off to amazing spa hotels. Really and nice places. <laughs> <laughs> and I always felt like, I always had a slight, slight imposter syndrome when we were doing that kind of thing. Because I feel like, really, you want me to come to like a really posh hotel? Yeah, yeah. Having said that, I used to work in a corporate environment and I used to have to travel for work. So everywhere you went, you were put up in like the, the nicest hotels, in the nicest rooms, you know, with all the service you could want and not having to really pay for anything. And then when it comes to booking my own holiday my standards have kind of been like oh we can't go there because I'm used to this standard so uh, exactly (laughs) but but when you see how much it's going to cost you and you're like oh hang on a minute there's there's four of us in this family as well so it's going to cost even more you're a bit like "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) 
maybe not. Um, listen, Robert, um, I really want to chat to you today about community, um, you know, creating not only a feeling of community, but genuine connections with people that in turn, I guess, offers them support. Um, yeah. But let's kick off by you telling me what does the word community mean to you? Wow. Community. Um I, I love community. I, I absolutely love it. I'm, um, I'm kind of all about reaching out to people and, uh, making that connection, which is what community means to me is connection. Um, whether that be online or in person or any other way that having a connection with a group of people is kind of like the best, the best environment to be in. You learn, you kind of grow, you develop, um, you realize who you are in amongst, you know, a group of people. It's, it's kind of the best environment. So yeah, yeah. connection. Connection. Yeah. That's good. Mm. Um, and from a parenting perspective, we very often hear the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Yet most of us don't have a village around us. We've lost that immediate community, haven't we? Do yes. you think it's something that we can ever recover? Um, I, th- I do, I do think it is. Um, I think, but we need to be, we need to recover it. Um, we, there's so many different communities as, you know, as parents, especially now, I think all of these different communities have, have kind of sprung up. I think we need to now do some work to, to recover that real sense of, um, community. I mean, we were just having this conversation the other day with my neighbors. We live in kind of a row of four houses and all four houses have small children, similar age. And we've got kind of an open space out the back where it's kind of, it's semi private. So people wouldn't necessarily come come around the back and I was saying to my wife like when I was younger we had a similar thing and I would run between houses we would play out the back all day and come back at dinner time no mobile phone no kind of parents rushing out every two seconds whereas now even in our semi-private space out the back with knowing that all three houses have children I still get nervous you know, going out, letting let my children just run out, out the back because I'm not sure, I'm not always confident whether other people, our neighbours or, or friends that are around, not friends, but neighbours that are around would actually look out for them or are looking out for them. It's funny, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that, that will resonate with so many people. Like, you know, I'm, I'm the same. We used to just play out in the streets and my parents, I'm assuming must have just felt really confident that, mm because they knew everybody on the streets and everyone's kids were out. Everyone was kind of every now and again, glancing out the front window. Oh, everything's fine. Um, but we, yeah, we, we have lost that, haven't we? Yes, we definitely have. And with, I mean, um, instilling, um, confidence in, in children as well, that sense of community was, um, imperative because they, to know that so many people are looking out for them, you know, made, made children a lot more confident. Whereas now I find that my children, not because anything we've done necessarily, but are very wary of people, especially what's going on in the world right now in terms of like the virus and, and hygiene and social distancing and all of that kind of stuff. It's made them very wary. So we need to do some work, I think, to bring back that sense of small children knowing that there are many people looking out for them um, so that they can be confident in themselves. That's so true. It's funny, I was having this conversation um, with my daughter um, last week um, because, so she's 10. 
my eldest. Mm-hmm. And um, randomly at like 5.30, one, I think it was like a Monday, mon- last Monday, the doorbell went and it was three kids from her class saying, can, can she come out to play? And that has never happened. And that's not something that does happen, I don't think, because it's not 1988, let's face it. But, um, and it kind of threw it, took us by surprise. And we were like, okay, we'll go out for half an hour and but stay on the street where we can see you. And that was fine. But I felt really, really uneasy about it. And the next day I was like, do you know what? I don't think we're quite there yet. I said that to her. I was like, you know, don't, I don't think that's going to be happening for, for quite a while. But I kind of chatted to her and I said, look, if you were out and some bigger kids came to, and I said bigger kids, but really I'm, I'm saying if a horrible, like, grown up who, was, yeah. who had <laughs> horrible intentions, but I didn't want to kind of scare her too much. I was like, if older kids came up and started hassling you, what would you do? I mean, basically the conversation developed where I was saying to her, look, if you were kind of near any of our friends, you know, the the parents of her friends, people who live nearby on the streets around us, if you were near any of their houses, run to their house. I was trying to kind of explain to her that her home isn't the only safe space in the local community. Like, you know, she has, she knows people around and it was just, it was kind of weird. I, I've got shivers just thinking about it just now as I'm talking to you about it, because it was just kind of, it's such a weird step to go from having smaller children who you are completely protecting and, you know, they're in this little bubble to suddenly they're taking these steps into the the, the bigger, wider world yeah. and kind of equipping them to deal with that. It's, it's kind of a big deal, isn't it? And and also it's like equipping. So I, I do not know how we survived as children without mobile phones. Um, going out, I remember I used to go out with my friends from early in the morning and the only thing my parents would say is be back for dinner uh be back just before dinner half four five o'clock ish and then we used to be out we used to be on our bikes going to the woods or going wherever and doing whatever and there was no no interference from our parents whatsoever and i don't know now how we manage that like what I think now what if something happened while I was out or what if my mum needed to go out and you know and, and tell me that she was going out all of that is just weird it's just weird to me well I'll tell you what would have happened Robert if your mum had had to go out she would have put a note on the door saying <laughs> Robert I've had to go out I'll be back soon and that would have been it you know yeah 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 <laughs> and then you would sit with your bike waiting outside the front door until yeah. they get back to to unlock it it's just yeah it's, <laughs> it's just a really weird thing but i think that um mobile phones and that connection are great um in a lot of ways but one thing it's broken is that that um sense of community that we talk about and that connection because you've got a direct connection with one or two people that you rely on i.e your parents or whoever it might be your spouse whatever it is so you've got that direct connection so you don't always necessarily feel you need anybody else around you or to look out for you because you're always connected to the person that you want to be that you want to inform um but yeah we definitely i mean us as a row of neighbors are working on that community a lot um especially during lockdown we are working on that it's taken us four years to to kind of get there but having you know communal socially distanced barbecues and letting the children running out in and out each other's gardens um looking out for them and just 
you know, just providing them. We had our parents' um, son come over the other day to our garden and he was just playing and uh, my neighbor was working. So I, and I wasn't. So I would, I gave him lunch, um, gave him snacks, drinks, you know, made sure he had what he wanted, made sure they were okay in the garden, et cetera. And that's what we want. Like, and, and she didn't have to worry because she knew that there was someone else taking care of them or, or looking out for them. Um, so yeah, we need to get that back. I really, I really feel we do. We do. And you mentioned that it improved over lockdown. And I think that's something that so many of us have experienced because suddenly our worlds shrank, didn't they? And we were, you know, told stay at home. And it was, we were really aware that there were potentially vulnerable, um, you know, older neighbours and people who were self-isolating, who couldn't get to the, the shops to buy themselves basics. And that's definitely a positive that's come out of lockdown, isn't it? Just that feeling of getting to know your neighbours and having a conversation with them. Yeah, absolutely. And actually finding out their, their names, uh, what they, what they do for work and uh, where their family are. You know, it's that, that is to me, there's so many stories right on our doorstep, but we ignore them because we think we've got a bubble or we think we've got a friendship group. But, you know, there's so many people around and so, so many interesting stories to get to know as well yeah, that we miss it. That's so true. That's so true. Mm. Did you find when you had kids that you suddenly became aware of your local community more? Um, or were you, have you always been kind of quite sort of local community minded? Um, so I wouldn't describe myself as local. So that's one of the issues and the battles that, um, me and my wife have sometimes is that, um, I tend to look nationally, um, and big picture. And sometimes, sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes I forget that there's actually things I can do, you know, right on my doorstep. But I also feel like, you know, I'm from a big city originally. I grew up in a big city. So there's so much to do, so many things to get involved in. So where in. did you grow up? So I grew up in Bristol, um, which is known for people just doing random things whenever they feel like it and just getting it done. Um, so we used to hold, we used to like rent out disused um, shop fronts and put on plays and there used to be like, just random, th just do whatever we wanted to do for, for the community. But it was a, a city community rather than, you know, a, a small town. Whereas now I live in a small town and I still can't shake the big city mindset. Um, so sometimes I ignore what's going on in my small town and I look kind of a, at a bigger picture. So, um, so yeah, I've kind of usually, um, yeah, bigger than just my local area, um, which is what kind of my business is shaped around and what my work is shaped around is kind of like a, a UK, a national kind of thing rather than a local town thing. It's interesting you mentioned that actually, because I think that, you know, when I think about you and what you put out into the world, I feel like there are loads of ways that you're helping to nurture that feeling of community. But I think that your work, your business, this social enterprise that you, that you run, you know, that, that encapsulates it perfectly. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I run a uh, film production company that is, um, our kind of main aim is to diversify the UK film industry when, when we talk about crews and what we found, um, over the years is the film industry have done, has done a lot in terms of, um, diversity on screen. It's still not there, but on screen, 
Um, and top level talent, you will see diversity programs um, and looking at black stories, for example, or black talent. Whereas when you actually go on set, the crew are still the same demographic. So they usually, um, it's typically been rich white males that have dominated the crews um, from lower level to mid-level talent. So we're kind of disrupting the industry where we're bringing in those mid-level crew and junior crew, but from diverse backgrounds. But one part of that is we work with the likes of Prince's Trust um, and other charity organisations to work with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So those people that might not have a support network, might not have a sense of community like we've just been talking about, um, and might not have anybody around them to encourage them or make them realise that their dream is can be a reality. Um believe that they can work sustainably in their passion, which is film. Um, so we're kind of set up for that. So we, I work with BBC, ITV, Sky, uh, uh, BFI, Film London, all sorts of uh, organisations to help them identify crew from these communities that may be overlooked or disadvantaged um, to give them work uh, opportunities, paid work opportunities. So that's kind of what we do. And again, we do that on a national scale. So we're mainly based in London and there's so many communities in London that are just completely written off and overlooked. And all you hear about them are, you know, when something bad happens, uh, you hear about that community, but there's so much talent, there's rich talent in that and raw talent in those local communities, in those high rise, high rises that you see in those kind of maybe not so attractive areas for people to go into. There's so much raw talent and they're doing things and they can do things. And we kind of want to bring them into a community which is wider than their own. So how do you do that? Do you, like, how, how do you find that talent? Do you kind of, you know, run workshops that, you know, the, these kids can come along to and show an interest and show what they can do or how does it work? Yeah. So we, 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 we do it a few different ways. I literally get everywhere. My face and my name, I try and put it everywhere I can. <laughs> um, and I get into random places, um, because you never know where you're going to find these people. And a lot of these people don't know they have, the talent. So finding them is, is quite tricky. Um, so one of the ways we do that is w one of the areas that we work in is with the Prince's Trust. Um, and they have a, an amazing outreach, um, program where they, they attract these young people that may have barriers. So, and we run workshops, film workshops and, uh, work experience programs for those young people that come through the Prince's Trust. And we also do that separately. So we go to um, youth charities. So for example, we work with a youth charity that deals with knife crime um, or, or uh, young people that are trying to escape gangs, um, young offenders, uh, all, all sorts of different youth charities. And we just run open workshops for them and they can discover where their talent lies. If their talent lies in film and media, then amazing. We will take them on and support them for a lot longer. Um, so yeah, we do various outreach, uh, programs, training programs and, um, working with charities to find these amazing young people. That sounds so good. It's a social enterprise. I don't really know how business stuff works. Um, <laughs> does it make any money or are you just doing it to, you know, how, how does that work? How does it pay your bills? So yes, we do make money, but I haven't been paid for, well, I've, I'm being paid now, but not enough. Um, but it's one of those things where I got to the point where I had to take the leap. So um, one of the sacrifices I made was 
not being paid for quite a few months. Um, but we do make money. So the way we make money is we get government funding, um, but we don't make a profit. We make a profit, but the profit all goes back into the business. Right. We, as directors, we don't take, um, dividends or we don't make any money from that apart from our, our wage. So, um, so every penny that comes into the business goes back into supporting young people. So we get government funding, um, other funding from other charities. And we are also a commercial film production company as well. So we make branded content adverts for the likes of Ticketmaster, Royal Academy of Arts, like all of these different, um, organizations and they pay us like they would pay any production company to make their their branded content but on every single piece of content we make we have um, at least two individuals from these disadvantaged backgrounds or communities working in a paid position on those shoots um, so they're getting their work experience they're building their cvs they're building their contacts in that area as well and then when those companies pay us. We then invest that back into supporting the young, the young people. So that's kind of how a social enterprise works. That's how it's different to a regular business. We don't make a huge profit and then pay it out to directors or investors. We, um, keep that and invest it back in the community. Cool. And I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, that, um, a big part of the problem is, um, not having, uh, I guess the people who are in power, I guess the people who are, you know, um, sitting around, you know, the table making big decisions at these, you know, broadcast companies and production companies, um, there's no diversity there. So mm-hmm. how, how do we solve that? You know, is it in, in, in the industry, is it, um, that people who are working on the crew, eventually work their way up to having more of a you know a managerial role or is that not how it, how it works like it's what I guess what I'm trying to say is it's what you're doing will eventually filter up to you know the big wigs being a much more diverse you know group of people <laughs> well that's that's the plan that is the plan but the reality is slightly different so the gatekeepers like you say are still um and I'll say it again, they're kind of white males, um, older white males when you get to the top of the production companies, um, who are making the ultimate decisions. But we tackle, um, the kind of lower management, lower crew levels first. Um, so as that builds, and you're quite right, these people will go on and develop up, up the chain. They will start to then put pressure on, on the, the big wigs, if you like. Um, and that's, that's the kind of hope that it will be a shake up from the bottom because it is so difficult to get that from the top. The fact is, if they don't like your face or you don't say the right thing, then that's, you don't speak the right way. You don't look the right way. Then that's all they need to know. Um, which is a real big shame. And the nepotism that comes into it when all through the film industry is another, um, barrier to tackle. And unfortunately, um, young black boys from Hackney are less likely to work in, you know, these kind of big environments where they can work up, work their way up the ladder. So yeah, we're trying to change that. Yeah. Even like you were saying, you know, just, just not being around people who are, you know, in that industry. I was reading something recently about, you know, nepotism and about, um, how children of actors and actresses very often go on to um, do very, very well as actors and actresses themselves. And yeah. um, even if they 
say, well, no, I've done this all on my own merits. You know, it's all my own talent and my hard work. Actually, even just growing up with parents who are in that job and in that industry has a huge effect and, you know, influence on them. So that's, that's a big stumbling block, I guess, for so many people who have that talent, but it wouldn't even occur to them to develop those skills and think of that as being a potential job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever I hear someone who has a parent or, or relative in an industry and they've, they're very successful and they've become successful, it always makes me laugh. I never take the hard work away from them because no matter how you get into the industry, it's still hard work. You still have to work just as hard as anybody else, but it's the the biggest barrier is getting in in the first place. And that's what they haven't had to overcome. Um, and they're right in there, right in the thick of it, talking to the right people in the right places. So yeah, that, that's really difficult. And I mean, you talking about, um, people wouldn't even realize those opportunities are there. I had a conversation a, a couple of weeks ago with a giant, um, production company broadcaster and they were talking about their schemes their diversity schemes and i just said to them look these the the people that you are after will not even bother clicking apply on a diversity scheme because they know thousands of people will do it there will be people in the mix that have wealthy parents that have been to university or film school or whatever it may be and they have people that support them they wouldn't even click apply and the ones that do um, click apply you may not actually see come through your doors because there's so many barriers for them um, so yeah, we, we try to disrupt as an organization and go in at that level where we can, um, get them in the back door, I would say, um, get these people in the back door and get them in front of the right people because they'll never have a chance otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, now, you are undoubtedly um, a, a big voice on social media. Um, and that in itself has become a you know really important community for so many people parents i would say particularly um did yes. you set out to become a voice to dads or is it something that kind of just evolved naturally <laughs> it definitely evolved i mean i set out um on instagram specifically to uh meet dads and find out other dads kind of journeys and just go along with them and um as i was becoming a father i think i joined instagram when my son was uh two i think um 
And I didn't necessarily have many friends that had children at that time. I was kind of like the first of my friendship group to have have children. So I didn't really have anyone that I could relate to. So that's the reason why I joined. And I never joined to be a voice or to bring people together. I was kind of like, I wanted to be part of a group. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to, um, someone else to be kind of like leading me. Um, and then it definitely evolved. And when we talk about, um, you know, my voice being amplified, BLM, uh, 2020 was kind of, I think for a lot of black content creators or black bloggers or, um, whatever you want to call it, that was the moment where kind of a lot of people found their voice or not found their voice. Their voice was always there. Other people found their voice. Um, and it happened with me as well. And that's where I became more of a standalone. Um, and, but what I was so happy about with that situation is the fact that I'd already built this community of, of dads. Um, I already built this network of dads that I could talk to and that, that would support me and I would support them. So when it came to the BLM 2020, and I had all of these new people. I felt kind of safe because I knew I had a community of other dads and mums as well. Um, I mean, 80 odd percent of my, um, audience are, are mums. So, are um, they? That's <laughs> yes, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How does your wife feel about that? <laughs> oh, she doesn't mind. I mean, I think I'm quite, um, I think, I, yeah, I'm not too risque. So it doesn't, uh, <laughs> no, nothing ever kind of. Yeah, nothing ever happened. So it's fine. Um, but yeah, so she's absolutely fine. But everyone's, um, everyone's really, really supportive. And I already had kind of a network, as I say, and a, and a safety net. And I always know that they're going to be there. So it didn't re- it doesn't really matter. I'm not out to be the biggest Instagrammer or, or the, um, you know, an influencer, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to talk to people about what I feel passionate about. The more people that listen, they're great. I think that's what's so refreshing about you. And I feel, I, and I kind of, to me, if someone was to ask me, what's the secret to being brilliant on social media? That is it. I mm. kind of feel like if you just know what you're there to do and you're not kind of worried about being the biggest and the best and having the most likes and all, you know, that's all a massive distraction, isn't it? And I think if you're just there you know, with a, with a really clear goal in mind as to what you're, why you're there and just are consistent with it, then that, that's kind of the secret. Yeah. I mean, I, I, over my few years of, uh, being on Instagram, I've seen people come and go and try and fail and leave, um, and all of these things. And, and the one thing that I can probably say is that most of those people are trying to be, uh, internet famous or an influencer when they haven't necessarily got anything to, or, or they haven't shown anything that they're influencing. Um, they haven't shown what they're about. They've just tried to either mimic other people or, um, just, yeah, not really talk about anything or have a voice. And I think it's really important. Everybody I follow on Instagram has something that they're passionate about and I don't necessarily follow all parents. So I will follow like just random people because what I love is when someone has a passion and they're consistent and they talk about it. I might, it may not necessarily relate directly to me. Um, but I love it when someone is so passionate about something and can talk 
the socks off of someone else about that subject. Um, I love it. I mean, one of our mutual, um, friends, Alex Light, I follow oh, her yeah. and her she's content so is, she's amazing. Her content is nothing to do with me. I am it's not. It's really not aimed at you, is it, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> And probably if I didn't know her, I, I probably wouldn't follow her because it's not directed at me and she couldn't care less and she'll tell you that. But um I know her, so I follow her, but I just love her passion. I love it um because she's so consistent with it. And like you say, it's consistent. It's that same message, yeah. but delivered in a creative way each time, like a just slightly different way each time. And it's, yeah. I agree with you. She's great. She's great. Awesome. Um, I've got, I have got a real issue with, with the word influencer though. And I've, yes. I have for a long time. <laughs> I don't, I don't identify as being an influencer myself. And I kind of, I feel a bit annoyed that it's a term that has, you know, been slapped on so many people, like a sort of catch all term. Because if you think about it, the, the whole, you know, the media world has been influencing people you know, since day dot. And I think that suddenly because we're doing it, you know, talking about stuff on, uh, you know, on social media, we've been branded as being influencers. And I would say the majority of us, we're not here to influence. We're here to, ha- you know, to start conversations, to, um, you know, to have that connection that we spoke about right back at the start of our conversation. That's why we're here, not because we want to influence you, whether it's to influence your opinion on something or whether it's to influence to buy, you know, a loaf of bread, which I saw that you were advertising <laughs> the other day. No, but do you know yeah. what I mean? That's, you know, that's not why we're here. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, exactly that. I, I really cringe at the word influencer, but I think it's just become a kind of catch-all term for, for people that have some kind of following on on Instagram but I kind of had this debate with one of my colleagues about influencer and I was kind of like it's really cringy and he said to me but you influence a conversation you don't necessarily influence someone because you post an ad they're not going to run out and buy it necessarily um straight away don't don't tell the brands that robert don't tell the brands that <laughs> i've they just all run out deals. and buy the bread <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> buy the bread now come on um, but <laughs> no he, he kind of said to me you influence a conversation so um that's kind of how you can look at it and i kind of didn't have a comeback for that immediately but I don't like the the way that's described influencing the conversation because to me it rings manipulating something or or kind of trying to change your mindset and specifically when I talk about race I'm not necessarily trying to talk change someone's mindset because I believe that's way bigger than me and that's way bigger than reading a post on on Instagram but I'm just adding to a already existing conversation and adding my own experiences to it rather than trying to influence what you think. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I cringe at influencer <laughs> all the time. I also think as well that the reason that it's, you know, influencing the conversation, I, that doesn't, resonate with me at all because I feel like we're there to start conversations, to hold conversations, but conversations are two-way, right? So I'm not just there broadcasting my views. Very often I will have a conversation with people online and they'll change my mind and I'll be like, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way before. So they're influencing me, you know, it's, it's a two way thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I, I think one of the myths of, um, of kind of 
let's call them influencers or people with an audience, um, is that they come up with these things, go online, post it, come offline again. Now, some people do that for a period of time, but actually the amount of time that I spend listening to other people's point of view, looking at other posts, seeing what people are talking about and how they're talking about it. And then, then a, a post or a caption or a blog may spark in my mind and I'll, I'll start typing it. I don't just work in a silo and come up with these things, you know, just off the top of my head. Sometimes I do, but it's, it's influenced by so many different things that are happening. So I'm not the originator of the conversation. Yeah. Um, now your Instagram bio mentions your faith. Now that yes. seems like it's something that's very important to you. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'm very involved in in my faith and in in active in in that and in the church community. Do you think it's a challenge to raise your boys to have good values and beliefs in a world that, in a lot of respects, seems to be going the other way? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think there's um, there's a real focus on uh, as as with everything as there should be on so many different causes, and I think religion. Um, always kind of comes into it in some way, shape or form. And I always say to people, I am not religious, but I have a faith. So yes, I go to church, but I don't feel that that is not, um, I go to church, therefore I'm a Christian. I have a faith, therefore I'm a Christian. And my faith teaches me to love people and to support people and to help people. And that's kind of what I do. But it's really difficult when um, raising the boys in a faith or in a household that has a faith. I mean, ultimately, they can decide what they want to do whenever they decide to do it. Um, but yeah, having so much outside influence... Um, and a lot of people telling them or, or a lot of messages saying that that's wrong to have a faith or, um, that's, you know, your religion is wrong. You, what your, what the, what your religion talks about is wrong. Um, all of these things. It's, it's really difficult to balance. Um, but we've always been open. The children can choose what they do when they do it. Of course, we'd love them to have a faith, but it's, they're their own people. Um, and they will decide when they decide what they want to do. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good way to to be actually, especially as they're getting older. How old, how old is your eldest now? Seven. Yes. Seven. So it's that thing, isn't it, that sort of in the next few years he will start to have even more outside influence, and you know, be listening to other people and their views, and just working out for himself. All right, what, what's important to me? What do I believe in? Yeah, absolutely. Even now he's questioning things uh, that his friends may say about faith. He goes to a faith school. So, um, and everybody knows that not all children that go to a faith school necessarily practice in them that faith. So you get a lot of different points of view and a lot of different opinions. So he's already um, kind of questioning that and looking at that and responding to those kind of, uh, those kind of things. But I mean, yeah, even just the values, in this household, we don't swear. It's one of the things that not that we, we never really have. I've never been a swearer. My, my wife has never really been a swearer, but last night over dinner, um, my seven year old came out with the, the classic swear word, um, which I'm not going to repeat, <laughs> but he came out with it so bold and so, um, confidently because he didn't have a clue what it meant and he didn't really know what swear it is. So, oh, no. so I was, I was literally di dying with laughter, tears rolling down my face. <laughs> I could then explain to him that it was bad while I was 
crying with laughter um, and rolling across the floor. So, um, so yeah, even those conversations we're having with him about his values around the language he uses and why people use it and why different people feel that different things are acceptable and not acceptable. So yeah, we're having those conversations with yeah. him. Yeah, because he'll, he'll be hearing that stuff. Even, even though he goes to a faith school, he will be hearing that stuff in the playground. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. You know, it's kind of, it is quite a weird phase, I think, when you when you have that kind of slightly older child, but they're not yet a teenager and just it's kind of to me it's been it was kind of terrifying at first when I realized that all of these external influences were probably going to end up being louder than the influence that, that we were you know giving at home um but I'm I'm kind of I'm used to it now and I'm kind of I'm, I'm okay with it and I think you've got to almost be confident enough in the foundations that you have laid in the years earlier to then kind of let them give them a little bit of freedom and let them kind of go off into the world yeah absolutely I mean that that is you nailed it confidence like in what you've how you've raised them so far is is the key because otherwise you'll be just forever I mean as parents we have enough to worry about and we worry constantly about their welfare so just having that peace of mind that you've done all you can um, to instill the best values in them, let them go and explore and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, <Fingers crossed>. let, <laughs> <laughs> let's go for it. But I mean, in terms of outside influence, one of the things that we are really battling, especially at this time, is um, to raising two black boys to go out there into the world is so scary. It's like especially now. Um, in general, it's kind of, it's worrying in the fact that, you know, what are they going to come up against? What barriers are they going to reach as they grow up? You know, what jobs, what, you know, how are they going to tackle this whole thing? But now with the whole national conversation being around race, it's even more scary because our children as young children are going out there and hearing certain things and people's loud opinions on what they think. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just a, a, a different time. It's a whole different world for them. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I thought that with the conversation happening around like Black Lives Matters and everyone, you know, in my world anyway, and I'm aware that I do, we, we all live in a bit of a bubble. And, you know, in terms of like social media and who we're friends with, you know, we are all talking about this. I would have thought that would have made things better in terms of, how you're feeling raising two black sons, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel kind of more reassured. No, absolutely not. I think it's, um, I mean, in the moment of obviously bigger picture when we're looking at how, um, how conversations are happening and what's happening, um, and how things may be changing that makes me feel better for when they get older because it'll give them more confidence to be able to talk about that stuff but at the stage there they are now with so many and because it is people's I'm still going to call it even though BLM 2020 was only like last year people still have knee-jerk reactions and they think they can voice their opinions loudly whether that be a racist opinion or a um anti-racist opinion or whatever it may be, whatever opinion they have, that's still out there. And the way it can uh, influence a child of that age can be quite damaging. I was talking to another black 
father from from the school a few weeks ago and they were learning through lockdown they were learning about Rosa Parks was one of the um one of the subjects they were learning about and it was kind of put in there as most schools did shoved in there oh we yeah. we need to do something let's put some s- box, some something Parks. black yeah but without any thought to the impact that learning about racism and civil rights would have on young black children. There was no support. So in particular, this, this black father that I was talking to, his daughter was really distressed for learning about that, but there was no build up. There was no support afterwards. It was kind of like, you are going to learn about the history of people that look like you and how much they were hated and how badly they were treated and, you know, how that's changed now or not changed as it may be. But that's it. We're just going to drop it there and then move on to the next thing. Um, whereas black children, I think we need to realize that the impact on a black child is going to be completely different to the impact on a white child. And we need to put that support in place, um, for the parents and for the child itself. Definitely. So as we are, you know, trying to get our schools to diversify their curriculum and their, you know, all throughout the year, not just in that one, you know, black history month, you know, let's, let's teach the kids about black history and then forget about it for the rest of the year. We also need to be encouraging them to, you know, create that support for, for the black pupils and their families, don't we? Yeah. Even if it's kind of, you know, informing the black parents or informing parents in general, what's coming up, um, and how, what the subject matter, how they're going to tackle the subject matter and what, you know, what's involved in that so that the parents can have something at home. So when the child comes home and start questioning, am I, I'm not as good as my white friend or, um, you know, am I going to, come up against this because this is what these people um, came up against or how they were treated. Am I going to be treated that way? You know, we're, we're prepared. We n- kind of know what they've been learning and know that what the conversation in the classroom has been. So we can then educate them. Um, you can educate. We, I mean, a lot of black parents educate their children about racism from a young age, but it makes when they learn about it in school, it's a completely different ball game because then it's someone else's opinion um, and it's someone else's take on that racism and, and how that conversation happens. Yeah. What, what kind of reaction have you had? You know, like you mentioned, you over the last year, especially have been talking a lot about racism on, on your social media channels. What kind of reaction have you had? Have you had mostly positive reaction from people or have you had any kind of issues to deal with? Yeah. My audience are amazing. I love, I cannot stress that enough. I love them. They, everyone is so supportive. Everyone is so engaged and happy to have conversations and happy to tell me kind of stories, whether that be um, trauma that's happened to them or um, things that they're doing. They've just been very open. I love my audience. And I know some of my um, colleagues that do similar things, they haven't had it as as easy or been as supportive. Um, but I'm, I feel myself quite blessed that I haven't necessarily had that, um, negative reaction or trolls. I've had a few, don't get me wrong. You know, you get them all the time. Racist trolls that come onto your page that send you horrible DMs or write horrible comments on your posts. But, um, all in all, I think my audience, engaged audience drown those people out 
um, straight away. I had someone comment something on a post and I saw the comment come through and I ignore them or delete them, but I couldn't delete it because I couldn't get on the app. I just saw the notification come through. Um, and the first thing I saw was something about you, well, you all need to stop. And then I thought, right, this is a troll. And then when I finally got onto the app, I just saw loads of my followers kind of tearing this person apart, not in an aggressive <laughs> way, but kind of dismantling his point completely all the way through. And I thought, there you go. I don't need to do anything. They have my They've back. They've got your back. That's so yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's kind of testament to how you have built up that community of, of followers, um, you know, by, you know, being as positive as you are and being, I guess, as authentic, which is another word that I really hate, um, but being <laughs> as authentic and positive as you are means that you have attracted this brilliant, you know, crowd of, of people who are listening to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It always amazes me. I mean, yeah, it just amazes me. I took a two week break. Um, I came back kind of this week and not because I'm an influencer that's working really hard or anything, but just because I needed to, um, I needed some time not to see other people's lives and not to get sucked into negative news. And there was so much going on. So I kind of took a two week break from Instagram in particular and didn't engage with anything on that. And when I came back, I came back to messages, just simple messages from people saying, you know, really miss your face on my, on my stories or, you know, miss the joy that you bring or whatever it may be. And it's, it, yeah, it's just really nice to come back to. I don't expect it. So it's, yeah, it's nice to, to build that up. Well, Robert, you are doing brilliant things all, you know, Thank in you. all aspects of your life. So well done. Um, but it's been so <laughs> good to have you on today. Um, where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you, which I'm sure they will. Yes. So uh, you can find me at This Father Life um, or you can uh, also look at my company page, which is at Signature Pictures Academy. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.